tonight's tantalizing tales. Whoopsie, US bombs the wrong Dutch at Nijmegen. Britain's biggest cash grab, seven men and a Securitas secret. And Christchurch shaken, not stirred, earthquakes billion dollar boo-boo. Nice Ison. Plus, don't miss our exclusive on the latest diet. Craze, eat nothing but thistles and lose weight fast. Those are the headlines. Stay tuned or you'll miss the mischief. News Bang. The news unplugged, uncensored and unapologetic. 1944. On this day in 1944, the Allies and Axis powers were locked in a titanic struggle for control of Europe's precious sausage reserves. The war, which had already claimed between 70 and 85 million lives, was about to claim more innocent victims, this time in the sleepy Dutch town of Nijmegen. It was just after lunchtime when disaster struck. American bombers, looking for their intended target of Hitler's sausage emporium, accidentally hit the wrong city. Eyewitnesses described how high above them they heard the roar of engines as wave after wave of B-17 flying fortresses unleashed their deadly payload on unsuspecting civilians below. In an instant, years of pickled cabbage production were wiped out. I was just munching on my herring, said one eyewitness named Hans van der Winkle, when suddenly there was a terrible noise like two tanks having a fight inside a cowbell factory. The raid lasted mere minutes but left behind utter devastation. Shattered Gouda cheese craters where once stood picturesque windmills. Clogs scattered like so much kindling and worst of all, countless women bereft of their wooden hats. As rescue workers sifted through the rubble with bare hands or at least some sort of implement, it became clear that life would never be depressingly flat again for those caught up in this tragedy. Eldum. 2006 Tunbridge, Kent, the scene of a daring heist that would go down in history as the Tunbridge robbery. Seven men stole almost £5 million from a Securitas depot, an amount so large it needed its own security detail. The haplite of 2006 saw these criminal masterminds leave with just half their loot, unable to carry any more due to the sheer weight of greed weighing them down. The Swedish-based Securitas, meaning no security in Latin, was left red-faced as they realized they'd been outsmarted by men who struggled with shoelaces. Witnesses described how the robbers spent 20 minutes arguing over directions before making off in two separate vans, one for them and one for the cash. Local resident Dave Higginbottom said, I couldn't believe me bleeding eyes. I thought it were a film shoot until I saw they nicked me milk money. Kent police are baffled but remain optimistic about catching the thieves. We're following several lorry tracks, DCI Tosspot told us, and have released CCTV footage of seven men running away with suspiciously full trousers. 2011. An earthquake of 6.3 on the Richter scale, named after German confectioner Willy Wonka's sidekick, struck Christchurch in New Zealand today killing 185 people and causing around 40 billion pounds of damage. The quake, which measured 9.2 on the Jaffa Cake scale, left residents shaken but not stirred. One eyewitness, Shaky McFallabout, said, It was like being inside a washing machine with God on spin cycle. The epicentre of the quake was pinpointed to be near Wellington, no relation to Michael, 
where seismologists have been drilling for Marmite reserves for years. The city now lies in ruins, or Kiwi bits, as locals call them. The Prime Minister John Key has appealed for help from neighbouring Australia, who responded by chucking over some Vegemite and a Foster's lager. That should do it, mate. News Bang, the daily dose of truth delivered by the voice of authority. Our very own Shakanaka Giles will now take you through the meteorological tribute to the 2011 Christchurch earthquake, complete with a downpour that might just rival the tears of the entire city. Tomorrow, the weather's got a bit of a throwback to 2011 when Christchurch, New Zealand had a rather unpleasant encounter with a 6.3 ml earthquake. It was a bit like Mother Nature playing a nasty game of Jenga with the city's buildings. Starting in the southeast, expect a rumble of thunder, not quite as dramatic as the Richter scales shake-up, but enough to make you spill your morning cuppa. Moving on to the Midlands, it'll be a bit overcast, as if the clouds are mourning the 40 billion New Zealand dollars billion damage caused in Christchurch. Up in Scotland, there'll be a drizzle, akin to a wee tear shed. So, in summary, it's a wet one tomorrow, folks. But remember, it's just the weather's way of saying Kia Kaha Christchurch. And that's all the weather. Thirteen sixteen. We take you back to 1316, where the Battle of Picotan unfolded on the Peloponnese Peninsula, then known as the Morea. The Catalan forces under Ferdinand of Mallorca emerged victorious over troops loyal to Princess Matilda of Hainau. The Catalan Principality, historically part of the Crown of Aragon, celebrated a hard-fought win. However, Ferdinand's days were numbered, as he met his end at the hands of Matilda's husband in the Battle of Manolada. And for more on this medieval melee, we turn to our roving reporter, Brian Bastable. Amidst the chaos I stand. Brian Bastable, your correspondent from the trenches of the bloody Battle of Picatine. Today, on this Peloponnese Peninsula, the air reeks of gunpowder and fear. To my left, a Catalan warrior, his sword stained with the blood of the enemy, to my right, a fallen soldier, his last breath whispering tales of defeat. The ground beneath me soaked in the crimson hue of war, the clash of steel against steel, a symphony of violence. The roar of the cannons, a deafening cacophony, the screams of the dying, a haunting melody. Yet amidst the carnage, a glimmer of hope, Ferdinand of Mallorca, the Catalan leader, stands tall. His eyes filled with determination, his voice echoing with courage, his sword a beacon of victory. Against him, Matilda of Hainaut's forces, their spirits broken, their bodies battered, their hope fading, yet they fight on. For what? For honour? For pride? For a land that is not theirs? 
The battle rages on, the sun sets, the moon rises, and I, Brian Bastable, stand in the midst of it all, reporting live from the front lines of the Battle of Picote. 2011. In a daring escapade that would make even the most audacious of silver screen spies green with envy, a group calling themselves Free Joseon infiltrated the North Korean embassy in Madrid. The incident, unfolding in the annals of February 2019, has since sparked a whirlwind of intrigue and speculation. One individual has been apprehended, while international arrest warrants have been issued for others hailing from Mexico, the United States, and South Korea. Governments of the latter two nations, however, have been quick to distance themselves from any involvement in the affair. As the story unfolds, we turn to Ken Shit for further details. Good evening, degenerates. As we travel back to the year 2019, let's not forget the year that brought us flying cars, AI, and a daring heist that shook the foundations of the goddamn world. A group of audacious motherfuckers broke into the North Korean embassy in Madrid, Spain, and stole mobile phones and digital storage devices. They were like a team of highly skilled ninjas, infiltrating the embassy and snatching the goods like they owned the place. And own it they did, because these motherfuckers were part of a group called Free Joseon, and they were on a mission to expose the truth about the goddamn Kim regime. The stolen goods were handed over to the FBI, and one motherfucker was arrested. But the rest of these badasses, they vanished into thin air, leaving the world to wonder who the hell they were and where they came from. The suspects came from Mexico, the US and South Korea, and the latter two governments were quick to deny any involvement. But we all know the truth, don't we? These motherfuckers were working together to bring down the North Korean regime, and they succeeded in stealing some of the most sensitive information that the Kim regime had to offer. This is Ken shit, reminding you that sometimes the truth is worth risking everything for. And these motherfuckers did just that. They risked their lives, their freedom, and everything they held dear, all in the name of exposing the truth. And for that, they deserve our respect and admiration. 1909. And in 1909, the Great White Fleet, led by USS Connecticut, completed a historic global circumnavigation. The US Navy, the world's largest and most formidable, boasts a mighty fleet and impressive personnel. With 11 aircraft carriers in service and more under construction, the US Navy remains unrivaled. The Great White Fleet, commissioned by President Theodore Roosevelt, featured 16 battleships, all gleaming white. Hardeman Pesto now delves deeper into this monumental voyage. Martin. I'm aboard the USS Connecticut as she steams majestically into Hampton Roads, Virginia, completing her epic round-the-world voyage. What a sight! Sixteen gleaming white battleships returning home in triumph after their unprecedented display of American sea power. Yes, Pesto, quite a spectacle, I'm sure. Remind us, when did this epic voyage begin? Well, President Roosevelt sent the Great White Fleet on its journey in 1909, so they've been at sea now for one year. One year? Circumnavigating the globe in one year on coal-powered steamships? That's remarkably quick, isn't it? Uh, did I say one year? I meant one month. One month at sea, quite a feat nonetheless. You said 1909 just now. Are you claiming the Connecticut could steam around the world in a month over a hundred years ago? With coaling stops? Of course, American ingenuity at its finest. 
I have the ship's log right here, dated 1909, or maybe it's 2024. Hard to read my own handwriting, haha. <laughs> but the Welcome Home Fleet review is certainly a sight to behold in beautiful Hampton Roads. The only thing beholding Hampton Roads in 1909 was the Jamestown Exposition, Pesto. There was no aircraft carrier fleet. Have you bothered to look at what year it is? No need, Martin. I can see the USS Ronald Reagan anchoring right off my port side. And there's the Gerald Ford. What a glorious sight here in Hampton Roads on this momentous day. Pesto, the Pacific Fleet is not in Hampton Roads. You are standing on a dock looking at nothing. I'm terminating this fantasy fleet report right now. Quite right, Martin. Wouldn't want to miss the fireworks display. Or did I make that up too? Ah-ha. Back to you in the studio. Pesto, you're a fireworks factory of fiction. Now go away. 1944. In a grim chapter of World War II, the city of Nijmegen in the Netherlands became the site of a devastating accident. US forces, in the midst of the global conflict, inadvertently bombed the city in 1944, resulting in hundreds of civilian casualties. Nijmegen, one of the oldest cities in the Netherlands and the largest in Gelderland province, bore witness to a tragic event in the larger context of the war. Now, to shed more light on this tragic incident, we turn to our resident historian, Bertrand Spitfire. In the grand tapestry of Earth's history, we find ourselves in the year 1944, a time when the planet was embroiled in a global game of cosmic chess known as World War II, the players, the Allies and the Axis powers, locked in a deadly dance of strategic maneuvers and brute force. This unfortunate period saw the extinction of over 70 million Earthlings, a number so staggering it would make even the most hardened space pirate blush. Among these tragic losses was the horrific genocide known as the Holocaust, a dark chapter in Earth's history that still sends shivers down the spines of intergalactic historians. In the midst of this chaos, a particularly unfortunate event unfolded in the city of Nijmegen, nestled within the Dutch province of Gelderland. A bombing raid by US forces intended to disrupt enemy operations took a devastating turn when it accidentally claimed the lives of many innocent civilians. Nijmegen, a city older than most civilizations in the Andromeda galaxy, was a place where Earthlings once traded stories over steaming cups of coffee and indulged in the simple pleasure of watching the sun set over the Waal River. But on this fateful day, the skies above Nijmegen rained down terror instead of stardust. The bombs fell like meteors from an angry cosmos obliterating homes, shattering dreams, and leaving behind a trail of devastation that would take years to mend. The city, once a beacon of hope and resilience, was now a haunting reminder of the brutal realities of war. As we gaze upon the stars and ponder the mysteries of the universe, let us not forget the lessons of Nijmegen. For even in the darkest corners of space, there exists the potential for both beauty and destruction. And it is up to us, the chroniclers of cosmic history, to ensure that such tragedies are never repeated.
Bang's Bang, sifting through the ashes of yesterday's lies. Introducing Ryder Boff, who takes us back to the ice rink of 1980, where the United States faced off against the Soviet Union in a legendary ice hockey match. And now a trip down memory lane to a time when men were men and sports were, well, rather chilly. The year is 1980. Lake Placid is the stage for what can only be described as an icy David versus Goliath tale. The United States ice hockey team, young lads with more dreams than sense, faced off against the Soviet Union's veritable titans of the rink. The puck drops. It's pandemonium on ice. The Soviets, four-time defending gold medalists with more medals than a North Korean general at a military parade. But wait, the Yanks are skating like they've got rockets in their trousers, they're scoring goals like I score, parking tickets, and it's over. The miracle on ice, America erupts like a Coca-Cola volcano at a school science fair. Speaking of miracles, I once managed to escape from my own personal gulag. Two weeks in Torquay with nothing but rain and a deck of soggy playing cards. Now let's rev our engines back to 1959 where Lee Petty, no relation to Tom Petty though both have been known to run down dreams, won the first Daytona 500 NASCAR race at Daytona International Speedway in Florida. Engines roaring like lions in mating season, tyres screeching like my Aunt Mabel when she sees a mouse. There goes Lee Petty, racing royalty before we even knew what that meant. His car darting through the track like a greyhound after an exceptionally fast rabbit, and he takes it by just a whisker. Or should I say bumper? What an absolute belter of a race. Petty was indeed the patriarch of the racing family tree, which later sprouted Richard the King Petty, not to be confused with Elvis, who was also known as the King, although Richard rarely wore sequin jumpsuits while driving. Daytona Beach itself has always been close to my heart, spent my honeymoon there many moons ago. Beautiful place until you find yourself accidentally entering an alligator wrestling competition thinking it was bingo night. That's all from me tonight, folks. Join me next week when we'll be discussing whether synchronised swimming could ever replace war as humanity's ultimate conflict resolution method. Here's Polly Beep with a roundup of some extraordinary travel news. Prepare to have your mind blown, your expectations shattered, and your preconceptions about transportation turned upside down. I, we're diving into the past now, folks. So strap in and let's travel back to 2012, where a train has gone and crashed through a buffer stop at once railway station in Buenos Aires. The scene is a bit of a mess, with 51 souls departing early and over 700 injured. So if you're planning a trip to the Balvanera neighborhood, might I suggest a quick detour? In other news, it's chaos on the M25 near Heathrow. A massive game of cricket has broken out and the rules are, shall we say, fluid. The umpire's been taken hostage by a group of belligerent bowlers and a passing coach full of school children has been commandeered as a makeshift pavilion. If you're heading to the airport, you might want to give yourself some extra time. And in a bizarre turn of events, the M6 in Birmingham has been transformed into a roller disco. Skaters of all ages are whizzing up and down the motorway, dodging traffic cones and the occasional bewildered motorist. If you're planning a trip north, make sure you've got your skates on. 
And finally, in a truly baffling incident, the Thames has decided to take a break from being a river and has become a giant slip and slide. So if you're heading into central London, you might want to pack a swimsuit and some water wings. Traffic's a bit slow, but at least everyone's having fun. Adieu. 1997. Calamity Prenderville delves into the groundbreaking creation of Dolly, the world's first cloned sheep, and the subsequent British cloning of super sheep and various animals. Even humans! Today, we're celebrating the birth of Dolly, the world's first cloned sheep. That's right, folks. British innovation has once again outdone itself. It all started in 1997, when a team of mad scientists at the Roslyn Institute in Scotland decided to play God. They took a cell from a sheep's udder, popped it in a test tube, and voila, Dolly was born. You see, Dolly wasn't just any old sheep. She was a super sheep. A sheep with a difference. A sheep with a mission. And that mission was to produce more super sheep. The team at the Roslyn Institute didn't stop at Dolly, oh no. They cloned a whole flock of super sheep. They were stronger, faster, and smarter than your average sheep. They could jump higher, run faster, and solve complex mathematical problems. But it didn't stop there. The team then decided to clone a whole range of animals. Cows, pigs, chickens, you name it. They even cloned a few humans, but that's a story for another day. So, here's to Dolly, the world's first cloned sheep. A testament to British innovation and a shining example of what can be achieved when you mix science, technology, and a healthy dose of absurdity. And remember, if you ever feel the need to clone something, just remember, keep it British, because when it comes to cloning, nobody does it better than us. This is Calamity Prenderville, signing off from Newsbang. Good night. News bang, taking the pulse of truth and making it beat louder. Over on Newsbang Longwave, you'll be able to catch last year's test match highlights. But now, Sandy O'Shaughnessy takes over the airwaves. Prepare for a historical escapade spanning 1371 Scotland and 1921 Mongolia, featuring the Stuart Dynasty and the Bogd Khan. Nice and easy. Ah, and a very good evening to you all. It's your favourite radio raconteur, Sandy O'Shaughnessy, here to whisk you away on another historical romp through the annals of time. I'm taking over from the ever-dapper Martin Bang, who's just popped off to the loo, or so he says. But I've got a sneaking suspicion he's sneaking off to the pub for a cheeky pint. But, as they say, what happens in the newsbang towers stays in the newsbang towers. Ah. <laughs> Now let's take a little trip back to the year 1371. Ah, the good old days when the House of Stuart was just getting its royal feet wet. Robert II, the first monarch of the House of Stuart, was crowned King of Scots. A bit of a mouthful, that one. I imagine the coronation was a grand affair with more tartan and haggis than you could shake a stick at. Ah. <laughs> now, the Stuarts, or the Stuarts as they later came to be known, were quite the busy bunch. They produced monarchs in Scotland from 1371 and in England, Ireland and Great Britain from 1603 uh, to 1714. A veritable royal production line, I'd say. And speaking of production lines, I received a delightful letter from Mrs. O'Reilly in Limerick. Ah, 
<laughs> she writes, Dear Sandy, I've started a small business making bespoke leprechaun hats. Do you think there's a market for them? Well, Mrs. O'Reilly, if the Stuarts can make a go of it, I'm sure your leprechaun hats will be a roaring success. Huh? <laughs> now let's skip ahead to 1921, where we find ourselves in the wilds of Mongolia. The Bogd Khan, the spiritual leader of Outer Mongolia's Tibetan Buddhism, was reinstated as emperor after white Russian forces led by Roman von Ungern Sternberg drove the Chinese out of Mongolia. A bit of a history lesson and a geography lesson all rolled into one. Ah. <laughs> now, Roman von Ungern Sternberg, or the Mad Baron as he was known, was quite the character. An anti-communist general in the Russian Civil War and an independent warlord, he was known for his violent treatment of enemies and his own men. A bit like a certain Mrs. Murphy who runs the local bakery. One wrong move and she'll have you knee-deep in soda bread and custard tarts. Huh? <laughs> but as they say, all good things must come to an end. And so, dear listeners, it's time for me to bid you a fond farewell. But as always, it's not goodbye, it's just... See you later, alligator, in a while, crocodile. Keep those letters coming, and until next time, this is Sandy O'Shaughnessy, signing off. News Bang, a new way to hear the news and a new way to be. And now, a final roundup of tomorrow's newspaper front pages... The Times, Vietnam General's Chopper Chop. There's a picture there of a propeller. The Independent, Von Stauben. Stepping up at Valley Forge. They've got a drawing of a Prussian helmet. The Guardian, Turkish troops bag al-Bab. There's a map there with lots of arrows. And the sun, tadpoles in space. That's the headline. And there's a photo of a frog in a helmet. That's it. Remember, tomorrow's weather, a deep depression over the Atlantic, is moving towards us like a vindictive charlardi. Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>